0: Welcome from me, John Strickland, to Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. In this podcast series, I'm talking with a number of leading players from different parts of the airline industry and exploring a range of views on where it might be headed, looking ahead over a time frame of 10 to 20 years. It's certainly fair to say that the industry is facing a a number of challenges right now. It's still been affected by the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, we've got military conflict in Ukraine, and we've got significant economic uncertainties as well. And on top of that, there's a changing political outlook in many parts of the world with globalization possibly being put in question. And of course, when it comes to the subject of the environment and sustainability, aviation is inevitably center stage and attracting ever-increasing attention. So in this episode, we're going to hear from Airbus, one of the leading manufacturers or in industry parlance, OEM, that is, uh, Original Equipment Manufacturer, on their perspectives as to how the airline business will be affected by these and future challenges. Indeed, our guest today has to make it his business to look at a multitude of future scenarios so that Airbus can plan its product portfolio and output reaching forward many decades. So with that in mind, I'd like to introduce Bob Lang. Senior Vice President, Head of Business Analysis and Market Forecast at Airbus. Bob began his career as an engineer at British Aerospace and has held numerous senior positions in Airbus, working on a number of its key aircraft programs. And since 2018, he's headed up the market and analysis team. So welcome, Bob. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be with you. Excellent. Well, Bob, I was just reflecting, knowing we were going to be having this talk, that uh, we saw very recently the celebration of 50 years since the first... Uh, airbus a300 wide body twin flew i just can't believe that's 50 years ago i still think of it as a, a new aircraft which says something about my own age uh obviously working out what the right product range should be over such a long time scale really does take not only skill but trawling many sources of information and over that 50 years i suppose you could say with airbus we've seen some amazing triumphs and some maybe less so and i'm thinking we've got the uh Tremendously uh, successful Airbus A320 family. Many listeners will have flown on those uh, aircraft uh, around the world. That design goes right back to the 1980s. We've had the iconic. A380, which is sadly no longer in production itself, probably reflecting the way that market dynamics changed. not a commercial success, but still very much a passenger success with the airlines who who fly it. So with those thoughts in mind, Bob, what what are your reflections over this 50 year period and the kind of evolutions we've seen uh, and the challenge of defining a future portfolio?
1: well it's interesting i think really the uh, the rise of airbus over the last 50 years has uh, mirrored great change in in the airline industry uh, 50 years ago the the airline industry was still very much uh, emergent uh, uh, airbus was created in 1969 which was the the year the the boeing 747 first flew and that was perhaps an aircraft that did more than any other to democratize air travel around the world it used to be so heavily regulated, you could not fly where you wanted every day of the week. You could not fly nonstop to the most parts of the world. And competition with airlines was so regulated that it was regulated down to the content of, of your meal tray. So uh, you can see how much markets have opened up to, to competition, to choice for consumers. And and how much that is reflected in in the real cost and price of air tickets, uh, which has made air travel uh, and transport of goods by air so much more accessible and linked, uh, driven, the connected world
0: that we're in today. Well, I think it's, it's a great summing up there, Bob. And it, it really made me reflect all the number of things you mentioned there that have changed. And if we, if we actually turn and, and jump right in now and look, for example, at airline business models, one model we, we didn't have back 50 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. I'm trying to remember when Southwest was born in the States, but we certainly didn't know about low-cost airlines here in Europe. And they perhaps are the ones who've really brought most revolutionary change in the way that their model operates and with uh, elements of the model being applied to, to other airlines today. I mean, do you think we're going to see further evolution in the years ahead uh, amongst the different kinds of airline model we have today?
1: Well, I think low-cost airlines have evolved in different parts of the world with the, the pace of, of deregulation and opening up of markets. The US domestic market was the first major market in the world first of all, to develop, then it was the first to deregulate and open up to competition. And the creation of Southwest Airlines in the 70s as the first uh, low-cost airline uh, was uh, an opportunity that was created through that deregulation. Then uh, Southwest was pretty much on its own as a low-cost business model uh, until the the European market deregulated when Ryanair uh, emulated essentially the Southwest model. And what we've seen in other parts of the world is not completely a a mirroring of Southwest models because each airline brings its own touch to match regional market expectations. But it it does mean that the the bulk of the the transport and the provision of transport in markets that have uh, deregulated, particularly short-haul point-to-point markets, has been driven by low-cost carriers. But in parallel network carriers have developed, which offer choice and competition by offering you a, a plethora as a consumer, a plethora of choices to go from A to B through different intermediate points. And that's the the kind of uh, flip side of the coin to the the low cost point to point business model.
0: And we're going to look at some of the the, the aircraft types as we go along, but mentioning that contrast between low-cost point-to-point and the network carriers or hub carriers, as some people may know, them, offering that uh, system of flights feeding through one big hub and offering connections and journey choices that wouldn't be there. Do you think they're going to survive in the new future, or do you think that that, uh, COVID has maybe knocked that out, people not wanting to go through hubs uh, anymore? Well, I, I think uh, it, it's
1: only normal that we ask ourselves the question coming out of the the pandemic. And uh, if you go to anybody in the street and say, uh, if you had a choice between going through a hub uh, with a connection and going direct to your destination, which would you prefer? Uh, I think everybody would vote the same way. But what hubs have brought is the aggregation of demand between points into a a network which allows airlines to fill aircraft effectively and keep costs and prices down. So, for example, I'll I'll be taught personally here. Uh, I would love a direct flight from Toulouse to New York. There isn't one. And there isn't one because there aren't enough people like me that want to go direct from Toulouse to New York every day. So uh, we're not going to get a a direct flight because there aren't enough of us to fill an airplane. So, Uh, We do go through then uh, third points. IATA, the the airline industry group, did a a very interesting study recently where they looked at the overlap in Europe between low-cost business models and network carrier business models. And they found uh, a a neat, as it turned out through the data, a neat Pareto there, where if you look at the, the passengers carried in Europe, 80% of the passengers are in the kind of overlap between the network carriers and the low-cost carriers. But if you actually look at the the point-to-point itineraries, or rather the itineraries that are served, uh, the A to B connections across the whole of Europe, 80% of them are only served by network carriers through connections. So uh, it's interesting to, to show the connectivity to society that the network carriers bring.
0: One model which is uh, emerging currently, it's up and running, and in which uh, Airbus is very involved, is for one of uh, ultra long haul. Uh, We've seen Qantas start flights non stop for the first time ever, just pre COVID, from Australia to London. Perth, in particular, from Western Australia. But Qantas laid down the gauntlet to yourselves and Boeing and what they call Project Sunrise to come up with an aircraft that was capable of flying the much bigger market from Sydney and Melbourne in the the east of Australia, also to Europe and London specifically. And uh, they've handed that gauntlet to you in Airbus to to meet that need uh, with uh, uh, an upgraded version of the A350. Tell us a bit about that, particularly as a model, because I, I wonder, while it's exciting, the whole idea of being able to go to Australia from London and non-stop is amazing. I I went once early in my airline career and made, I think, three or four stops on a 747-100. It's a lovely idea, but do you think that's going to be a bit of a, a niche market? Uh, are there going to be many markets around the world where there's going to be that demand to take a flight that might be 20-plus hours and pay pay an appropriate price for it? There'll be some, but not a lot.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's important to to understand uh, a part of Qantas's motivation which uh, they've been quite public about. First of all, just take the starting point that passengers do prefer nonstop services. So you, you have that as a starting point. Then you look at the, the geographic situation of Australia, where you're a heck of a long way from the US, you're a heck of a long way from, from Europe, with strong demand to, to both areas. Now, if passengers want to fly from Australia to Europe, they have a lot of choice through connecting carriers with hubs uh, anywhere from Southeast Asia to the Middle East to Europe. And so Qantas on those city pairs end to end has 30 something competitors, uh, all of whom make a stop. And Qantas themselves uh, to date have been obliged to make a stop. So uh, Qantas, if they have the ability to have the, the unique customer proposition to offer nonstop flights, it gives them a a heck of an advantage. Now, uh, you can equally argue that the only other people that would value that advantage would be the the airlines at the other end of the route. Clearly, the the guys in the middle want to leverage their networks and their hubs. So there are potentially uh, small markets between the the long-distance city pairs for the airlines at each end of it but uh, the these markets are, are, are not large in terms of numbers of passengers or or large in terms of numbers of aircraft
0: it'd be interesting to watch how that one plays out and from an oem perspective what's your view when you look at the market today in terms of Further consolidation, there's a lot of speculation about that with the impact of COVID, airlines going bankrupt and seeing much more consolidation. We haven't actually seen it. We've had progressive consolidation over the years. The American, North American market in particular is highly consolidated. Europe has become progressively so, but nowhere near as much as the USA. Are we going to see more of that, do you think, in different parts of the world, Bob?
1: Well, I think we've seen some some very sensible and lucid behavior um, in different parts of the world. Uh, and quite often, despite a lot of friction and complaining, we've, we've seen good cooperation in many places between airlines uh, and governments. Because seeing traffic fall by 95% to, to, to 5% of what it was in a, a business which has huge fixed costs and tiny margins is something that is it would be a challenge for, for any business. And so what we've seen was that, first of all, we, we had in many places governments that did uh, help their airlines through financing and loans and in some cases furlough schemes for employees. That has proven where it's been made to have been a wise investment. Let's not forget That the airlines over the years have become absolute experts at managing volatility, and uh, a lot of what causes other sectors huge problems is is something that that airline managements have been used to taking in their strides. And when they actually ask for help, they usually ask for very precise help, uh, knowing why they need it, what they need it for, and how long they need it for. Equally. We've seen that in the depths of the pandemic, I know we as a manufacturer, uh, we were concerned about uh, airline failures and airline restructurings. Not so much in the depths of the pandemic itself, but as airlines came back into service because of the strains on their treasury as they were starting to expand again. And so far, we've not seen the, the level of airline failures or restructurings
0: that we were anticipating at that point. And talking about that volatility, Bob, uh, going forward, uh, the structure of demand is something that you analyse every day when you're projecting market size and the demand for different types of aircraft. We've seen real turbulence and real reshaping of demand during COVID. Uh, Leisure travellers come back very strongly, people visiting friends and relations, business travel is is yet to come back, Uh, and indeed in question about the level that will return. We've got new phrases, uh, terminology coming in, such as pleasure, people travelling both on business and leisure combined. Um, What do you think is going to be the future for airlines? Is it going to become increasingly about volume at lower prices, or is it going to still be a a mix of premium traffic uh, and and what does that mean from from Airbus's point of view uh, as a as a manufacturer? Is it going to be about delivering simply the lowest cost per seat in the aircraft you offer to facilitate that type of demand that airlines see? Well, the the, the segmentation of demand inside an aircraft cabin, particularly
1: uh, long haul cabins with with multiple classes of product uh, which have hard differentiation and by hard differentiation I mean uh, physically bigger more comfortable uh, seats with much greater functionalities uh, big screens in-flight entertainment connectivity all these things is a topic in itself we know uh, what has been in the past the uh, the spread of demand according to purpose of travel who pays, between business and leisure, and we equally know how many people fill each type of class of cabin. What we have noticed during the pandemic is the airlines have continued to do something they do supremely well, which is to fill the cabins and fill the capacity they put on the market. So uh, when businesses had clamped down almost totally, on business travel because of restrictions in different parts of the world and when for example transatlantic long-haul long-haul travel had restarted uh, the business class cabins on transatlantic aircraft were still full but they were full of leisure travelers mm-hmm. now initially probably not paying the prices that the business travelers had been paying before But in many cases, these were travelers who were were tempted to try a different standard of products for the the in-flight product than they had before. And and some of them liked it, and some of them will buy that product again. So the whole structure of demand is evolving. It's not evolving fast. It will take quite some time. And that's just as well because the airlines operating mixed-class cabins would be, and, and they know this very well, they would be uh, rash to want to change things too quickly. If you actually look at the the, the yield structure, the unit revenue structure of the the tickets that are, are filling your cabin, you might not at any point in time quite like what you see. But there's a big journey between not liking the distribution that you see and determining what exactly is best in future, particularly if the consequences of what is best for the future involve uh, cabin retrofits, which cost uh, double digit millions per aircraft. You'd want to be pretty sure of, of what your to be aircraft configuration uh, is needing to be for your operation. So this is something that will play out over over many years and uh, we'll probably still be seeing the consequences
0: of that at the end of the decade. And with that mix of the traffic on board, especially on long-haul flights, they wonder if at some point we might even see more flexibility in physical cabins because, as you said, the, the kind of seats that people are willing to pay more for, particularly business class, but now increasingly with the premium economy as well, they are different seats. They have all the electrical uh, gadgetry to, both to make them work in terms of recline and obviously in-flight entertainment and, and so on. They're, they're expensive. You can't just change those Uh, overnight. But if we look at airlines short haul, they've been able to flex the number of seats in cabins by moving the curtain up and down because it's a much less complex proposition. Do you think that might be an area of innovation for the future, finding a way that there there would be a seat that could be Change from an economy configuration to at least a premium economy type offer, if not business class. So, airlines have much more ability to adjust their aircraft capacities in line with the demand they see at at shorter notice.
1: John, you're touching there on the the holy grail of cabin designers worldwide (laughs) and seat designers worldwide, because absolutely this kind of flexibility is is something that uh, all airline planners uh, would. Uh, really appreciate. Uh, They've been asking for this for years. And uh, ironically, and perhaps counterintuitively, the more functional and comfortable the seats are, the more electrical they become, the more uh, they have uh, hydraulic actuators, and uh, the more sophisticated they are, the harder they are to move around and and switch around. Mm -hmm. So, Uh, Again, what we've seen in short-haul aircraft, I'm sure you're old enough to remember short-haul aircraft that had two class cabins with four abreast seats in the front and six abreast seats in the back. And uh, in Europe in particular, not in the US, interestingly, in Europe in particular, those have, have moved to configurations which are more comfortable in the front, but essentially have the same seats, perhaps spaced a little bit further apart, and some airlines may choose not to sell the middle seat to give the passengers in that zone of the cabin a, a little more space. But that hard differentiation has been uh, softened in a way to to provide this greater flexibility on a flight-by-flight basis.
0: Interesting to watch how that one plays out, uh, Bob, in the years ahead. And in terms of demand levels overall, and we, we look at the kind of things that you would be uh, covering when you put out your your global market forecast, such as uh, population changes around the world and the rising middle class. Do you think we're going to see a a change in the dynamics around the world of air travel? I'm thinking of countries like India with growing middle classes and where a very small percentage of the population currently flies, and yet in other areas, uh, maybe peak population coming fairly soon in the coming uh, couple of decades.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, ironically, we put out our most recent annual forecast in July and uh, about a month after we put out our our most recent uh, annual forecast, the UN forecast of Chinese population, which comes out every two years and was delayed a year. Uh, because of the pandemic. So three years since the previous one came out a month afterwards and and showed precisely that demographic of uh, a peak in Chinese population and, and slower growth. So we'll still be digesting that and, and uh, take that into account in our next update. But uh, yes, we are going to see phenomena in certain parts of the world uh, linked to demographic and population growth. But equally, you mentioned India. India is uh, an area which has uh, high growth economically, as well as high growth in population. The the Indian population will shortly overtake the Chinese population and uh, equally very poor alternatives to air travel. we are always at risk, and particularly in Europe, if I may say, but to perhaps to an extent in the US, we we always look at the world through our own lens. And it's important to understand that the, the contribution that Air Transport has made, uh, both for passenger travel, for visiting friends and relatives, but equally for, for business contacts and for the transport of goods has contributed to the development of, of all the countries we we live in, in in Europe and the US and is continuing to contribute uh, in the rest of the world. Um, so whenever we see a, a slowing of growth rates, and we, we are seeing a slowing of growth rates in mature markets, we're not seeing a reversal,
0: we see a slow, but they are compensated in other parts of the world, which are still growing strongly. And what what about Africa, Bob? Because that's a massive continent uh, and again, a young population, incredible challenges with surface transport, the need to really pull itself up uh, economically. Do you have any more sense of optimism that Africa can catch up? Because whenever we look at forecasts, whether they're the ones that you produce or, or others such as Boeing, Africa does still remain pretty small in aviation terms compared to those elements I've just mentioned. It has done, yes. And uh, I think the reason for that is that
1: the macroeconomic, political, geographical challenges uh, of Africa have been such that a number of the things that need to come together to really uh, favour the economic development have been slow to come together for a, a variety of, of reasons which are, are well documented um, so yes. Africa is, is uh, an, an area still of, of great promise and, and I think
0: we, we, will, we would all wish for, for
1: that to be realized.
0: Uh, still some significant hurdles, as you say, to overcome. Let's just touch briefly, Bob, on on manpower. We've seen uh, as traffic has come back in a number of markets around the world, a challenge uh, of manpower for both airlines and airports and uh, in uh, some contexts as well for manufacturers. What I'd just what like to get a sense of from you, Bob, is do you think we're going to see uh, automation stepping in more, whether it's in... Uh, Flying aircraft uh, or, in, or indeed manufacturing aircraft, or, or we're still going to need to seek skills for the future. We've, of course, you and I remember when there were three, four crew on the flight deck of an aircraft that had long since dropped to two, some small aircraft fly with one. And now we're talking about pilotless planes, production processes of, of aircraft, as we saw Previously, of cars have in many areas become more automated. What's the link between technology but also skills uh, as far as you see it in the decades ahead?
1: Well, uh, I think that everything we do in air transport, uh, first of all, uh, and this has ever been the case and ever more needs to be the bedrock of everything we do, uh, and that is uh, flight and occupant safety. So Uh, Because of that, uh, an aeroplane, a commercial air transport aircraft is a complex machine. It's a complex machine, uh, but it's a complex machine where some of the operations that go to make it are simple and repetitive. So uh, you would be uh, amazed, uh, and this goes for all aircraft manufacturers, at uh, the thing we produce the most of in aircraft manufacture are, are holes. And right. uh, holes, uh, we drill millions and millions and millions of holes. All those rivets and so on. Yes, which are filled with fasteners. Almost all those holes uh, are drilled by machine. Some of those machines still are held in hands. And we've been on a journey for decades now to to automate that. It's becoming more and more automated, uh, which means the job can be done with greater precision, with better repeatability, faster, and equally more cost-effectively. So in building an aircraft, it's not purely about taking labor out of the process. It's about making the job of aircraft assembly itself safer and more repeatable, about making the quality of jobs we provide in the industry better and and more value added. So improving the the quality of the jobs we bring into the industry because we are still an industry that's in growth. So yes, we're seeing more automation successively going into uh, every one of our production processes. Everything from uh, robotics to uh, exoskeletons for for operators to uh, avoid excessive forces on the the limbs and the upper body, for example. Now, when we come to to aircraft operations, we can see that it is increasingly possible to use uh, automation to improve flight safety. Uh, We've been doing that across the world steadily over the decades in terms of improving the level of information that pilots have in their decision-making, in terms of allowing, in some cases, uh, the aircraft to act to avoid aircraft hitting the ground. And uh, these are not innovations that have been brought in overnight, but have been brought in stepwise with the, the support of the pilot community and in full coordination with the pilot community so it will be a journey
0: let's just take a look at briefly aircraft types and we could talk uh for hours on this, but, uh, we're seeing changes in aircraft fleets. Airlines are demanding much more mission capable aircraft that can do long haul, short haul, high density seating, more premium focused seating. And Airbus's order book uh, is very indicative of uh, the importance of particularly a 320 family into the future, which, as I mentioned earlier, started off as a short haul aircraft and is now becoming very much a, a long haul offer, uh, it is a smaller aircraft, and we think back to what you said about the 747 earlier on or the A380. And if we're moving downward somewhat, even some of the big twin aircraft like the A350 or Boeing's um, 777 or 787, how would how you think that's going to play out in the world? It's indeed going to be the airport capacity to handle a larger fleet of smaller aircraft, if you see what I mean. Well, I, I think the two will develop hand in hand.
1: I, I believe uh, it's going to be, in future decades, uh, increasingly difficult to build new airports and airport ex- expansion will need to be done, really bearing in mind the, uh, the local environmental constraints, uh, both in terms of uh, community noise, uh, emissions, uh, traffic around the airport perhaps we are we're seeing that uh, in europe and uh, and the us maybe ahead of uh, some other parts of the world but equally we are seeing uh, emerging now and one example of that is the airbus a321 extra long range the xlr which is in flight test at the moment and will enter service in 2024 uh, that's a, a single aisle aircraft that will uh, allow flights of up to 10 hours so transoceanic flights uh, europe to the us for example and because it's smaller than the wide body aircraft it will allow flights point to point flights to be opened up between regional airports for example so i think what we are going to see in airports worldwide is the the best use of the existing available capacity the way air transport will develop in future is more about uh, optimization than boundless growth. So that will apply for point-to-point and regional aircraft. Equally, wide-body aircraft are used because they, uh, they also carry cargo. And, and let's not forget that during the pandemic, many of the, the long-haul liaisons only remain viable because of the cargo that was carried in the bellies of wide-body aircraft when the passenger decks were virtually empty.
0: Oh, cargo is very much a savior was isn't it, for many of these airlines?
1: Absolutely, and provides that resilience to the industry. So we will continue to see that. And, of course, many of the large hub airports today are already congested. So uh, we will see uh, growth in wide-body aircraft. We'll see growth in, in the number of narrow-body aircraft. And what will happen is that these will mesh together for system-wide capacity to to increase in an optimised way.
0: And and you mentioned about airports becoming increasingly congested, and I wanted just to touch on the view, you know, which I've talked about on a number of occasions with him, Tim Clark, president of Emirates, view that uh, that there needs to be a, a, a new larger aircraft. You could say maybe the Sun. Of the, of the a380 and, and tim of course has been very much behind the commercial success in airline terms of the a380 even if he, uh, he couldn't convince other fellow ceos to buy as many as as he did but he's made that point that airports that we're not going to get a new heathrow we're not going to get a new hong kong or a new jfk for example and as population Growth develops, economic growth plays out. We're going to find ourselves very short of capacity in the next two or three decades if we don't have a new one. Do you think it is conceivable there could be a new son of A380, as Tim would uh, suggest is needed? Well, I, I think for, for that to happen would need a large enough
1: number of, of like-minded customers to be looking for the, the right thing. The journey between Emirates and and Airbus on the A380 was absolutely symbiotic. The A380 would not have been what it it was without Emirates uh, and Emirates support. But equally, the A380 was foundational in the expansion of Emirates uh, business model and the success of Dubai as a hub. And, And I think everybody recognizes that what's more emirates were used their 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 special skills to transform the passenger experience and, of the a380 in, into what it's become uh, of of which we're all uh, for that reason as passengers we all want it to uh, stay in service as long as possible so interestingly enough uh, the success of of emirates who've become the largest transporter of long haul passengers in the world because of the success of that business model, equally did that by taking share away from some of the, the older established long-haul flag carriers and provoked a degree of emulation from other large hubs in the Middle East. So the you could also argue that the uh, the more large hubs there are in the Middle East, they would also be looking for large aircraft. And the question is how large. So I think that's uh, Tim makes, as usual, a, a very, very valid mm-hmm. point.
0: Uh, and uh, I think that time will tell how the uh, how the markets develop. Mm-hmm. I um, just want to move on now to the topic uh, where the aviation industry is very much in the dock. And that, of course, is the subject of the environment and sustainability. And you, uh, as a manufacturer and OEM, are investing enormously in research and development for new power plants, more efficient aircraft uh, different ways and different types of fuels. Uh, just like you to tell us a little bit about that, because what we know is if we talk about, for example, electric power or hydrogen power, none of that seems within current technological knowledge or capability to be remotely possible for decades ahead. But certainly from Airbus's point of view, you've talked about uh, at least hydrogen maybe becoming uh, a power source from the middle of the next decade, possibly an aircraft of a size, um, of, of today's A320, but we hear other people in the industry say that's just not possible. So where are we now and where do you think we're going to get on this essential issue?
1: Well, um, as you're aware, a couple of years ago, we launched our, our Zero E project where we came out with a very clear ambition and vision to be the first manufacturer to bring a zero emission aircraft to the, the market in the middle of the next decade, and we showed three concept aircraft ranging from 50 seats, 100 seats, 200 seats, which are, are based on hydrogen propulsion or hydrogen energy, let's say. And we're pursuing those concepts. And in order to pursue those concepts, the starting point is not picking a concept. The starting point is de-risking every element of the technology on board the aircraft, um, through the propulsion system, on the ground, and equally paving the way for the, the ecosystem for the hydrogen as the energy source to be viable to support aviation. So all these things have been launched in parallel streams and partnerships you would have seen the uh, announcements we made uh, about uh, testing a uh, a hydrogen burn engine on uh, an A380 just after the middle of the decade together in in partnership with uh, with general electric and and safran you would have, have seen the work we've been doing uh, on partnerships on on hydrogen hubs as well we see that this is something that is the the promising uh, energy pathway for the future, really for the long haul, and I don't mean long haul aircraft in terms of of point to point, time and distance. We know that for the lowest, if you like, the lowest hanging fruit to reduce our emissions, uh, initially, um, is actually aircraft replacement. Only 13% of the, the fleet in the world today is actually with the latest generation of of engines on it, the latest generation that Boeing and ourselves are delivering. So more than 85% of those aircraft need to be replaced and we we get a a 20% reduction in emissions straight away. So that's the the low-hanging fruit. We know we need sustainable aviation fuels. Those can't come fast enough in a way, but they need a, a great deal of investment to come in. They're expensive at the moment, and we need to build with with airlines, with fuel suppliers. We need to build the virtuous circle of building up demand uh, in order to uh, drive the investment into the production, in order to build the volumes and get the price down. And the thing is, the airlines are articulating the demand. They're not sitting there saying it's too expensive. They're saying the demand is here. We will commit to the demand, but we need people to commit to the investment to produce. So that's the, that's the, the immediate urgency in play this decade. Uh, when we see hydrogen, we see hydrogen in a variety of uses. It's, uh, it can be used uh, actually as propulsive energy through hydrogen burn or through fuel cells. But equally, it's a key ingredient in synthetic fuel, power-to-liquid fuel, which is the the step beyond and in complement to biomass-based fuels. And uh, we, again, for that uh, hydrogen ecosystem to take place, we are looking at multimodal as well. So we're looking at at points uh, in the world where we would see hydrogen in use uh, in aeroplanes, but equally in trucks and buses. It would have maritime use as well. It has rail use. There was a hydrogen-powered train that did, a, I think, a thousand-kilometer journey in, in Germany quite recently. So the interest in hydrogen is really because it is the the long-term play. And we know that it is the perhaps the most challenging one to really kick off and get behind,
0: uh, and that's why we're doing it. And just to try to wrap up this topic, you're investing enormous amounts of funding in this as as a manufacturer, uh, but it goes out with your own capability. Uh, Are you optimistic we can get more support, particularly from governments? And conversely, the other side of the question, Do you think if the industry is not able to expedite the pace of this change by the different means you describe that we risk some governments actually imposing restrictions on the industry in the year ahead? I'm very mindful of what we've heard recently, of course, the Dutch government talking about permanent capacity caps at Amsterdam, Schiphol. And that gives me fears for the future if this is not expedited.
1: I I think those are both live and, and legitimate debates. Again, uh, I think that we have different views in different parts of the world on the, uh, that there's a, a shared view of the the criticality of our impact to the environment. I don't think any of us can ignore that. In our impact to the environment, uh, there are different views in different parts of the world about the, the benefits of aviation, I would say. So there is always a risk that if, as a sector, uh, we don't do enough, then uh, as a sector, the rest of society will determine that uh, uh, we should be constrained because of that. Uh, So when we talk about our license to grow, it very much is our license to grow. And in doing that, we are not sitting on our our backsides going going cap in hand to government uh, and crying. Uh, I think you will see that the aviation sector is, is the sector in the world which is the most joined up on environmental action, which has the most coherent cross-sector strategy across environmental
0: action in aviation. Um, so we will continue to do that and we will continue to push. I think the point you make there about different attitudes around the world brings me just to the final points, Bob, which is the sort of geopolitical outlook. And we talked earlier about uh, countries such as India with growing population and, and a desire to travel. We talked about the the Gulf, where it's very clear that aviation is seen as part of a national strategy of uh, development in the future. And here we are. Uh, you and I in Europe, where with the old world and more more consciousness, perhaps, and uh, concern expressed politically about uh, the environment and aviation's role within it. Do, do you look, when you're doing your analysis, at uh, that diverging opinion for the future, and what that might mean, the, the different growth rates, the different attitudes? I don't know how you would quantify it, but there must be a way you try to build it into your estimations. Well, the the way I think and a thought to
1: leave you with, uh, when we published our most recent forecast, we introduced a change in our methodology. And it's the first year. By, by the way, to be frank with you, a forecast is a forecast, which means a forecast by definition is wrong. Yes. And the usefulness of forecast is sharing them with other people to to provoke reaction and contrast opinion. And that's why we do it. But. This year, for the very first time, we moved away from projections with kerosene prices towards projection of a what I would say is a fully burdened cost of energy. And what we did on a regional basis is we looked at what would be the, the future price of kerosene, but we equally looked at the, the future projected use of sustainable aviation fuels, their availability, the price of those sustainable aviation fuels, whether it's driven by incentives, such as in the US, or mandates, uh, such as in Europe. And we also looked at the carbon price. And we combine those to get a, a fully bundled cost of energy, which means that in our market forecasts, that cost of energy is different in different regions. And of course, we assume that it's fully passed through to the consumer and we assume a price elasticity of demand such that uh, if the cost of that energy is passed through to the ticket price, uh, then there's a a consequential impact on the growth of demand. So we did that for the first time this year. We think it's it's the right thing to put out there. It will improve as we build on that in subsequent years. But uh, again, It will uh, allow us to have the right kind of
0: dialogue with our stakeholders. Bob, it's been really great to discuss with you today uh, the challenges and opportunities that we see in the industry in the years ahead. We've really been able to draw on your experience and gain some real insights, both into your personal thinking and and what that represents for Airbus. So, So, Bob, many thanks for your time. Thank you very much, John. That's Bob Lang, Senior Vice President, Head of Business Analysis and Market forecast at Airbus. I'll be back with the next in the series soon, but for now, from me, John Strickland, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group Inc. or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions or delays in this information or any losses, injuries or damages arising from its use.